Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, January 13th. We begin with another edition of Ask the Doctor with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary. As always, Dr. Janney takes the time to answer coronavirus questions as sent in by you, the listener. Next, we take a look at the stringent new restrictions in place in Quebec, which include a province-wide daily curfew from 8 p.m. till 5 a.m. We'll speak with a Montreal-based civil rights lawyer about what, if any, legalities there are surrounding the curfew. Would impeaching President Donald Trump cause more harm than good for the U.S.? We hear the thoughts of an online journalist and former speechwriter for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And finally, it's only one sleep away. We tee up the start of the new Calgary Flames season with Flames assistant GM Craig Conroy. 8-12 on the morning news since the start of the pandemic. We've been posing your COVID-19 questions to our expert and associate professor of the Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, Dr. Craig Janney. And he joins us once again. Good morning to you, Dr. Janney. Good morning. I had a question for you, and I'm not sure. I know you take the listeners' questions, but can I sneak one in here? (laughs) Sure. Okay. I'm wondering, and this is something, a trend that we've seen over the past few days. Uh, Yesterday, Dr. Hinshaw coming out with a new number of 652 new cases identified. And then I look at the number of tests, and it's, uh, you know, less than 9,500 tests for that for that number of 652 positive cases to come out of and it seems to me that you know a month month and a half ago we had tests in the you know 15,000 to almost 18,000 per day and i expected that decrease during the holidays cuz people were were at home but now that we're kind of back at it we're seeing that lower number are less people just going in for tests or are the is the government doing less tests you know uh, and making less tests available yeah, I think it's a combination of, of both of those. Um, we, we have some other testing going on at the moment, too, which requires a, a different uh, actual assay. So, so there is some labor that's pulled off, for example, to look for these UK variants and the South African variant. It uses a, a different test, and we have to reanalyze samples for that. So we are seeing uh, the, the skilled technicians having to do some additional tests, and that can lead to overall reduced screening. Uh, but it's a very good point that uh, we, we're seeing good numbers, we're seeing encouraging numbers, but the testing has come down too, and that's why when we look at these, we tend to look at multiple numbers, not just the number of positive cases, but we have seen an encouraging trend in the uh, percent positivity as well, coming down from a high of near 10 to now in that six range. So we we need it lower, but it does, uh, all numbers are pointing that we're in the right direction. Always the way we want to be going for sure. Okay, we've got we've got lots of questions coming your way from listeners, and this one says, "I've heard that some who had their second injection of the vaccine are having a harsh reaction, unpleasant symptoms compared to virtually no reaction from the first shot. Why why would that happen?" Well, we are you know re in, uh, activating your immune response, so there'll be a little bit of inflammation, and that has been reported in the clinical trials. None of those, or very few of those, are seen as as uh, moderate or severe. So these are just slightly more soreness uh, at the site of injection. We have been monitoring both in Canada, uh, the U.S., and uh, around the world for severe and moderately severe adverse effects, and uh, really nothing has fallen out of line of what we saw in the clinical trials. So very very very, very low rates of severe adverse uh, reactions, and these are all tracked, and everyone that we've seen so far was predicted by the clinical trials and, and happening at the same rate. So it's encouraging news that the original screening and safety was done thoroughly and, and accurately reflects what the vaccine uh, does in, in Canadians. Next question, if I get a COVID vaccine and then test within days afterwards, uh, would it be shown as a positive test? 
That's a great question. The, the, the answer would be no, because we're injecting that little bit of RNA. So the RNA is what the test looks for, but we're injecting that into your muscle in your arm, and that has no way to move around it. It's not going to get to your nasal passage. So when you get swabbed for your nose or your nasal pharynx, you will not be picking up any part of that vaccine. So it's a great question, um, but no, you, you will not test positive because you've been vaccinated. Okay, how about this one? What happens to the second shot if it is not administered in time or not given at all about, you know, in terms of inf- uh, effectiveness then. And I guess that, that also brings up something we've been hearing of late where they might push it back from, you know, a couple of uh, weeks or after the first shot to, to now be like some 40 days later. Right. So the, the real answer is that we are basically guessing and we're, we're making educated guesses because those were not part of the clinical trial. So we can take our best guess based on other vaccines and other immunization processes that if we delay it a week or so, it's not going to really negatively impact uh, the actual vaccine schedule. But that has not been tested. What we do know is that if you don't get the second shot, we do significantly reduce the amount of protection. So it goes from the mid-90s down to probably or some of the patients were below 80, uh, which is still a high number. But what we really don't know is how long that lasts. That has never been tested, and that may not give you that what we're looking for, a durable response. You might have some protection for a couple months, and then it's going to fade pretty quickly. Dr. Janney, I'm wondering if we can hold you over for a couple more minutes after a quick break. Yes. That is great stuff. Thank you. That's Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary. 819 on the morning news and uh, Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary, has been gracious enough to spend some more time with us. And I've got the million dollar question for you, Dr. Janney. This, mm-hmm. is, this, is, this might be opinion, but I mean, obviously your world is science. Um, is there realistically any chance that will be even close to normal, whatever that is, by 2022? What are your thoughts? I think so. I, I really do. And I'm optimistic. I, I personally hope so, but I, I do think so. I think once we get our at-risk populations vaccinated and we get a significant percentage of the general public vaccinated, so we are at lower risk of, of exposing uh, people in, in at-risk groups, um, we will very much be able to reopen uh, pretty much everything we want to do. Um, I think the key now is that we do have a working vaccine, which means even as we get these new variants, we may need a new shot. We're no longer going to be waiting a year for that. It'll be a matter of weeks, and we can have a new vaccine available and started to deploy in Canada, and we can deal with new coronavirus variants as they appear. So I'm very optimistic, and, and I truly believe that you know even by the latter part of this year, we're going to be largely back to normal. You know, on that note, Dr. Janney, we, we did and still continue to see people texting and saying, you know, I don't want this shot right now. I want to see what the effects are on people who get it before me, because they're still mm-hmm. concerned that it got rushed through. Yeah. No, I understand that. And, and you know, it, it is hard not to, uh, to, to worry about this when things happen within a year. What we do have to remember right now, as of this week, uh, the shots that we're using in Canada have been administered more than 5 million times now around the world, uh, mostly in Canada and the U.S. Uh, the initial clinical trials followed, depending on which uh, of the two shots we're talking about, between 30,000 and 45,000 patients. And we have a very good idea. And, and to put that in perspective, that is as many patients that are normally recruited in a multi-year clinical trial. Uh, we don't follow them for years because we worry about the drug. It, it just takes that long to find that many volunteers. So this really has maintained all of the required safety standards 
but we were able to do everything up front. Instead of waiting for one company to develop a drug and find funding and go forward, we, we took care of that. We, we put everything in play at the beginning and then focused on the safety trials uh, that, that followed that. So I'm very confident when it's my turn, I will be getting it, as will my family. Got a very specific question for you here, Dr. Janney. Two years ago, I had a kidney removed due to cancer. Will the vaccine be safe for me with only one remaining kidney? see no evidence that there's any issues with kidney um, you know this is again the exact reason to have a conversation with your doctor so every patient has other conditions other underlying uh, uh, conditions perhaps other medication they may be on so these are perfect opportunities to open that that conversation have a very frank discussion with your healthcare provider and they will be able to immediately check if there's any restrictions and or any recommendations for individual patients one final quick question for you and you know these things still stick around because people just aren't sure but so does the covid virus float in the air or does it fall to the ground and if it falls can it come back and float up under my face shield uh so yes to basically all of those what it is is it is what percentage of infection comes from each route but we do know it can land and, and live on surfaces it can land and live on you know particulate matter that could be stirred up again dust or, or other things. Uh, it does appear that the, most of the transmission is through the air or through droplets in the air, but that does not uh, rule out the other ones. And we have seen recommendations that although uh, uh, masks or, or shields can help protect those around the person, they provide less protection to the person wearing it than a, a properly fitting mask. Dr. Janney, thanks again for spending your time with us this morning. Oh, you're welcome, guys. Take care. You too. That's Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. 7.09 on the morning news. Canadians living in Quebec now have a curfew and must stay in their homes from 8 p.m. until 5 a.m. as COVID cases surge across the province. We're going to check in with Julius Gray, a civil rights lawyer, to ask if these restrictions are justifiable and how they're being perceived so far. Good morning to you, Julius. Good morning. Well, uh, before we get to, you know, the legalities behind it and, you know, the civil rights aspect, let's ask you about this, uh, this curfew. We know that it's in effect now. How long or has it been given an end date that this 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. Yes. curfew will be in effect? I think it was originally proclaimed until early February, but it uh, uh, obviously will be extended or not, depending upon uh, the developments in, uh, with COVID. Wow, incredible. Uh, you know, in uh, difference, uh, differences for each and every province. So from Alberta, we're looking at this going, you know, 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. Is, is that legal to lock down a population, you know, for for that amount of time and say that you have to be in your home um, unless you've got maybe a special letter or a special circumstance? Uh, I think it's clearly a violation of the charter, of both Quebec and Canadian charter. But at the same time, I think it's probably justifiable by epidemiology. Uh, drastic measures have been taken in the past, uh, not only under the War Measures Act, uh, but uh, you know that Quebec, Montreal was almost evacuated during the ice storm, uh, and that would have been an enforced evacuation that's probably more drastic uh, when the water went bad. And Fort McMurray was largely evacu evacuated because of the fires. So I, uh, I think uh, the debate in court would not be whether... Uh, uh, there is a violation of the charter. There clearly is. But uh, whether it falls under the justification, and I rather suspect it might, uh, there would be certain things that could be contested if it turned out, for instance, if the penalties were draconian. 6,000 is a very heavy penalty, but nobody's got that. And uh, I suppose uh, a court could reduce it 
but I don't think it's quite, it amounts quite to cruel and unusual treatment. Um, the, uh, but if, if there were imprisonment or things like that, that could be contested. It could be contested with regard to the homeless because they haven't been formally exempted, although police are supposed to uh, be indulgent uh, with respect uh, to that. It could be contested, I think, if there weren't sufficient ex- exceptions, but there are mostly people who have to go to the pharmacy, have to go to the mm-hmm. to emergency, uh, who have to go to work because work is essential. Obviously, you can't foresee every exception, and I suppose uh, defense of necessity could be made if a new exception arose where a person had no choice but to, to leave. Uh, I'm thinking of somebody, for instance, suffering from acute claustrophobia or something. Um, but on the whole, I think it might get upheld. I, 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 on, though it would be a good argument, and it's not something that a lawyer would be ashamed to present before the court, I think in the end, most likely the court would say the government can do it. And that doesn't mean that it's effective. It only means that the government has a certain margin uh, it, it, it can try different methods of, of, of reducing infection, and this would be one of them. So maybe extenuating circumstances. So are you hearing from Canadians who, who feel this is an overreach by the government in Quebec and, and worried about you know how that might be in different provinces and perhaps from the federal government down the road if they felt the, the need to implement something like this from you know the entire country? Well, I, I think it's something that would be a joint jurisdiction. So if the provincial government could do it, the federal government could probably do it too. I am hearing from people who oppose it who think it's an impermissible violation of liberty. Well, I, I think it certainly is a violation of liberty. <clears throat> I don't think it's as impermissible as all that. The results are not so drastic. And uh, uh, with the exceptions and everything else, uh, I, I, I think the consequences of people catching COVID are much greater. Look at the fact that uh, uh, during the demonstration, the riot in, in, in Washington, three representatives have already caught COVID. It's a very infectious disease. And uh, I think the government could make a very good case that this is a legal one. As for the fact that other provinces haven't done it, it's the essence of a federal system that the result, the message used can be different. I and mean, Quebec has certain laws, Ontario has certain laws, Manitoba has certain laws. They're not all identical. Mm. Uh, Ontario's is, is trusting citizens, is asking them to stay home without bringing in a penalty. Well, we'll see who's right. You know, Julius, you say on the whole it will be uphold, uh, upheld, but I'm thinking due to the ambiguity of, uh, uh, you know, some of these rules, for example, if, I, if I'm out for whatever reason I want to be out and I'm pulled over by a police officer or a bylaw officer and they ask me what I'm out doing and I say, well, I'm going to the pharmacy to get some cough medicine for my child, I, I'd literally be off the hook, wouldn't I? No, you wouldn't be off the hook. You'd be on the hook mm-hmm. if it were false. Uh, if it were true, you'd have to do that and you might be off the hook the first time. But if you tell a lie then you might be viewed as obstructing justice, and then you might get into criminal trouble. You could be arrested. Uh, so, for instance, if you said you're going to work and you weren't going to work, and it could be checked afterwards, you uh, could get yourself into more serious trouble. Uh, however, uh, you're right. A person could say I, uh, uh, the first time that I'm going to the pharmacy or I'm going to emergency and, and, and then not do so. I would not advise anybody to lie. I think lying is precisely the way to get into serious trouble. Somebody might get away with it, yes. 
I, I guess, you know, it's people are, ho- or the government is hoping that people will do as asked by putting something like this in place and saying that the healthcare network is, is really strained because of the rising caseload in hopes that people will just do the right thing. But, you know, it, it, there's always going to be someone who challenges it, right? There's always somebody who challenges it. In this particular case, the challenge is a serious one based on the charter. But I do not think that the consequences of the curfew are so serious uh, that they would invalidate a measure taken. You know, it has to be a reasonable limitation uh, in a free and democratic society. And I think it may well be faced with an epidemic of this sort and faced with the danger of the death of uh, uh, 2% of the people who catch it. It's a, uh, a, uh, it's a very serious matter, on the other hand. You know, the Charter is, is not a straitjacket. Uh, you're not, you know, somebody's uh, liberty is not something that can be applied when it uh, uh, seriously endangers other people. In the same way, for instance, that uh, um, you couldn't uh, apply the liberty against uh, evacuation in case of in flood or fire or, or ice storm and so on. Uh, common sense has to apply to the Charter, and I think common sense tells you that a measure like this may be upheld by the court, would probably be upheld by the courts. Interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Julius. It's a pleasure. That is Julius Gray, civil rights lawyer with Gray Casgrain Law Firm in Montreal. 609 now on your Wednesday morning. We are halfway through that work week. Yes, and. We uh, Looks like, okay, we're just uh, trying to get a hold of Michael Topa, so we'll get to him in just one second. Wanted to mention over the past 24 hours, 652 new cases of COVID identified in the Calgary area, 819 people in hospital. Unfortunately, uh, a terrible day in terms of deaths, 38 additional COVID-related deaths. Yeah, and I just want to double, uh, double check. We have uh, uh, Dr. Craig Janney coming on after 8 o'clock. Right. That number, 652, is quite low, but the tests are less than 10,000, mm-hmm. so we'll dig into it with infectious disease specialist Dr. Craig Janney, whether or not the people aren't just choosing to go get tested or why the test numbers are down that's after eight o'clock okay we are talking about donald trump and and what's happening south of the border the conversation continues and would removing donald trump from office following the events at capitol hill last week be a beneficial move for the u.s or would it cause more harm than good. Michael Tobe is a columnist for Troy Media and Looney Politics, former speechwriter for Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and he joins us now with his thoughts. Morning, Michael. Morning. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks so much for being here with us. We know that at this point, uh, Pence will not invoke the 25th Amendment, if that's no. correct. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi, the Democrats, they want to go ahead with impeachment of Donald Trump. Is this a, a negative thing, you think, for, for the country, for the United States of America? I believe so. In totality, it is. And I know that people are obviously going to look at U.S. President Donald Trump's role in, as the Democrats are suggesting, inciting the mob that we saw, or the domestic terrorists, if you like, who stormed the uh, the Capitol building in the United States in Washington last Wednesday. And they'll argue that Donald Trump had obviously been using terrible language for the past nine weeks, claiming that you know, the election had been, the U.S. presidential election had been stolen from him, that there was widespread use of electoral fraud, both of which these claims have not been proven in any court of law. Certainly, smaller instances of electoral fraud happen in virtually all U.S. elections. They happen in Canadian elections. They happen throughout the world. 
But what he was calling for, or what his legal team was suggesting, that it was widespread, that it was this mass organized effort, of which I think we all all know, based on what the lower courts have said, and based on the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court has not heard these cases, there wasn't any evidence or there wasn't enough evidence to make a proper case. But when you put all of that together, even though obviously Donald Trump has been frustrated about his loss personally, it's taken him a long time to accept it. He said many times, even including the Save, the Ameri- Save America march, which happened the day of the, uh, the rioting that happened at the Capitol building, saying that he would never concede the election. Things that we've heard the U.S. president say now for a couple of months, that doesn't necessarily equate to the terrible amount of violence and things that we saw happen at the U.S. Capitol building. I mean, in the end, the obvious points are Mr. Trump did not participate in this event. He was not there. He didn't march with anyone. He never suggested in all the things he said, most of them which were dealing with himself and his own losses, he never suggested or alluded to anything of the sort that a mob should go up to the Capitol building and destroy a historical landmark that has been standing since it was created in 1800. So the problem is you set a terrible precedent when you anoint a U.S. president as being the model of saying things that are controversial, when virtually every U.S. president from George Washington to Barack Obama, all of the predecessors to Mr. Trump, have said and done things that were controversial. They didn't necessarily lead to the violence that we saw in Washington, but if you set the bar at sort of a ridiculous standpoint where you're stating that the president has to be almost a perfect human being in all senses of the word, I think you're setting a horrible precedent going forward that for any U.S. president past Donald Trump who makes a mistake or says something out of turn or says something controversial, they're going to point to something like this, this one article of impeachment that Donald Trump is facing right now, days away from leaving the White House. I think it's just a very bad scene and scenario. And the better way to do things is what they've been doing with Donald Trump lately, which is restricting him from certain things, throwing him off of Twitter, one of his most powerful political tools, having a number of financial institutions in the United States, including Deutsche Bank, J.P. Morgan Chase, and others, directly state that they are not going to deal with Mr. Trump, his family, his PAC, anything of the sort. That's the way you can set. That's the way you can actually do something against Donald Trump that is against him personally, rather than creating an article of impeachment that changes the whole nature of the U.S. political process, and it would be a terrible precedent now and in the future. But, Michael, you know, on the other side of the coin, you say that the president did not say go and storm a historical landmark. Uh, You know, there would be other people, detractors to that statement, who would say, well, he wasn't swift to come out and say, stop the violence. This, you know, he wasn't Mm -hmm. stopped to put, you know, uh, extinguish these flames, if you will. Yeah, you're absolutely, look, you're right. If you look at the difference between his very brief statement on the Wednesday, being January the 6th, where he told them basically all to, quote-unquote, go home peacefully, you know, that we love you, et cetera, et cetera, but then spent, I'd say, about half that short message talking about the electoral fraud and how the election had been stolen from him, versus the statement that he would make the next day, which was Thursday, January the 7th, where he condemned the violence, he condemned what they had done, and, you know, basically disassociated himself with anything like that, it would have obviously been right or better had the January 7th statement had been put in place, the January 6th statement, and that would have been an emphatic point 
showing that there is a break between Donald Trump and those domestic terrorists. But at the same time, the fact that the U.S. president did come out and make a brief statement, even though obviously it wasn't crafted very well and could have been said in a lot better fashion, at least there's something on the record. So I understand where his detractors are coming from. I fully do. I understand why people are frustrated with this U.S. president, and in many cases have been since he came down the escalator in June of 2015 <laughs> and declared he's going for the presidency. But that doesn't associate him with words and actions that were done by other people, maybe in his name, maybe not. But he certainly did not light the flame, so to speak. He did not or light that match that set, that set it all off. He just unfortunately did things around them that he really shouldn't have. And he kept talking about himself and this election that was, quote unquote, stolen from him when it actually wasn't. So, I mean, if it's not impeachment and it's not invoking the 25th, should there be any kind of penalty for someone like Donald Trump and, and those that come after him? Hey, uh, well, I didn't say anything like that. I didn't actually say those words. But, you know, someone who is extremely inflammatory and, and creates a situation like what happened last week, even if he didn't directly say, go storm the Capitol. Yeah, well, I mean, there is one option, and that was even suggested by Republican House leader, or still Republican House leader, Kevin McCarthy, which is censor. If they would censor him, at least if nothing else, yeah, it doesn't bar him from running from political office again, but at least it makes a point from the two houses in the U.S. Congress that they're not in favor of what he did, that they were irritated by what he said that they were angered that his words incited a mob of people, rioters, domestic terrorists, protesters, whatever you want to call them, but who basically stormed the U.S. Capitol. If they censored him, I think that would actually have an effect that maybe wouldn't obviously please many of his detractors. But I think that most Americans would at least accept that, if nothing else, stating that, you know, it's some sort of admonishment towards Donald Trump. Because polls, as the two of you may know and you may have looked at, you may have even discussed in your radio show, most polls show that Americans are heavily divided on this issue. That about, roughly about 50% of Americans, anywhere between 50, to the highest I've seen, I think was ABC, about 55, 56, stating that they would, they would favor some form of punishment towards Donald Trump, but many of them are sort of hesitant when it comes to impeachment, mm-hmm. because although there have been a number of U.S. presidents who have faced impeachment, including Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, and now Donald Trump twice, no U.S. president has been impeached to date. Wow. I mean, there have been some close calls. Mr. Johnson was an extremely close call, but mm-hmm. it's never happened. And that's, I think, another issue as well. A lot of politicians who are currently in Washington today mm-hmm. don't want to be the first to do something. Go down. They uh, don't want to set the precedent. I'm wondering, Michael, we'd like to uh, you know, keep you for two more minutes. Can we put you on pause for a quick break and, and uh, keep you for two more minutes? Sure, not a problem. That'd be great. That's Michael Tobe, a columnist for Troy Media and Looney Politics and a speechwriter, a former speechwriter for Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper. 6.20 on the morning news, and uh, yes, uh, more time with Michael Tope, columnist for Troy Media. Uh, Michael, uh, I wanted to ask yeah. you this. Let's say we don't impeach, uh, see the impeachment of Donald Trump. What does the future hold for citizen Donald Trump, if you will? Will he still have a place in the Republican Party, or do you think it is a case that he really very much could be on the ticket in 2024? Look, unfortunately, I think one thing we've learned with Donald Trump is that nothing is impossible in U.S. politics anymore. And I think it's pretty safe to say that irrespective of what we're seeing right now, a day in politics is, you know, the lifetime, as I am slightly paraphrasing an old phrase. 
four years is an enormous amount of time. And unfortunately, people's memories, you know, grow thin or wear thin as time goes along, and they forget a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. Or they look at it as a snapshot in time and they move past it. Irrespective of that, I think it's going to be harder for Donald Trump, though, to move forward in four years' time. And if he wants to be a candidate again for president in 2024, which he is certainly discussing right now, and polls showed up until the storming of the U.S. Capitol last week, he was actually way, way ahead of every possible Republican contender, including Nikki Haley, Jeb Bush, and others, by margins of, like, he was in the high 50s, low 60s, where most of them were in the low teens. It looked pretty safe for him. I think now his big problem is going to be is that he's going to be facing a lot of hurdles. He doesn't, as I said in the first segment, he doesn't have Twitter any longer. He's been banned from that. That was his big political tool that in many ways allowed him to connect with his supporters and others. He no longer has that option. He's been tossed off of, I believe, Facebook and Snapchat as well. I don't think he used the third very much, but Facebook obviously is a, you know, a huge social media platform. Um, he's also, you know, a lot of financial corporations and companies just don't want to deal with him, which is going to make it difficult for him to either run his business properly or raise funds for certain ways to build interest in his company. Again, doesn't mean he's poor. He has lots of money. But there obviously are certain ways, including a lot of legal ways, that you're supposed to raise money. And it's going to be very hard for him to do so. The name Trump as a brand name has obviously been shattered very badly throughout this. You know, we saw during his presidency a number of companies that had the name Trump as part of its logo for uh, buildings, etc., have changed it because they just didn't want to be associated with this president. We've even seen that, you know, the uh, the PGA Championship through golf, you know, the 2022 yeah, yeah. event was supposed to yeah. be run through Trump National in New Jersey. That's no longer going to happen. So... He's going to have a very hard road, but will he be a major player in the Republican Party? Absolutely. Will he be a major player in politics? For sure. The only way it might not happen is if somehow or other he either gets impeached, censured, or whatever from this, these last series of events. That may lead a lot of Republicans to make, try to make a formal break with him. But the big problem that they have is many of his supporters and many of his admirers are still in that party. It's going to be hard to break it from them. I'm hearing Ivanka Trump for 2024. That could be interesting. Thanks for joining <laughs> us, Michael. Appreciate your perspective. My pleasure. Have a good day. You too. That is Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media. 909 and nothing can hold back the NHL. Doesn't matter. Pandemic, coronavirus, nothing. Today marks the first game of the 2021 NHL season. Calgary Flames Assistant General Manager Craig Conroy joins us now with a little look ahead at the season for our hometown team. Good morning, Craig. Morning. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Are you excited? Should we be excited? Not just that hockey's back, but do we have a good looking team this year? What are you thinking? You know what I mean? We've only had about 10 days of uh, training camp, but everybody came back in good shape. Uh, they're excited. That's the other thing. I mean, you always want guys to be uh, looking forward to it. They've been working out, training, getting ready for this. And now, uh, yeah, finally all coming together. and Can't wait to get started tomorrow. But the team has looked very sharp in, uh, you know, in the two scrimmages we had. And hopefully, uh, you know, that carries over into the first game. Ten days of training camp, Connie, and that's a, you know, a, a training camp like no other. But I'm thinking, can you find a silver lining here with only ten days? Do you have every one of those guys really upping their game from day one? Well, I think you know what they they've been going back and forth, Andrew. Like they're you know in a regular season, you know exactly when you're going to start and you kind of gear up for it. 
you know, this year we just didn't know. So, you know, they've been going hard for a long time, and I think they've just been chomping at the bit. And you see them come back and, you know, all the testing scores that they were able to do. Everybody's in good shape, ready to go. Healthy is also a big thing. And, you know, I don't really think guys love training camp anyway. So yeah. We'll see how – if they we start off well, they're going to say, hey, we don't need training camp next year. <laughs> Craig, different divisions this year, obviously, different formats, even the, the regular season and, of course, the playoffs. So what's that going to look like for fans this year? You know, I mean, for us, you know, I was talking to St. Louis and, and Columbus and some other teams, but this is great for us. I mean, I love all – the Canadian teams playing each other. Uh, we're going to play each other in the playoffs. You know, it's, you know, when Montreal comes here or Toronto comes here, everybody's so excited. And now we're just going to get that many more of those games. You know, obviously Edmonton, Vancouver, Winnipeg is, they're always big, but uh, I actually love it. I said, if this works well, maybe we should just keep a Canadian division, uh, mm-hmm. you know, outright forever. It, it's going to be good. And I think the guys are looking forward to it too. From a real different year last year to this year, still obviously different from the norm. But I'm wondering how much of a difference it'll make to to have uh, you know games in your own barn. Is that a big deal? You know what I think it is. The guys are the guys are excited. I mean, I think after the bubble, they, the playoffs, everyone it went well. They liked it, but uh, it's a long time and it's hard. And you do feel like you're just kind of confined. And you know, you really I didn't see grass. For probably you know the whole time we were there it's weird you're just kind of in this concrete little area and they did a great job but you know i think if the guy said hey if we have to do this for five four or five months it's just it's just too much so yeah they were pretty excited to, to be able to at least play at home and you know there is a more concerns with the travel and everything i mean we're following all the protocols to try to make sure we're as safe as possible but you know, you, you just never know. So, I mean, that is a concern for us. The bubble was so locked down tight. You felt like once you were in it, it felt very comfortable that it wasn't going to, the coronavirus was not going to spread there. So, you know, this is a little more concerning, but I think the NHL and, uh, you know, working with the different governments all over uh, have set up a good kind of plan moving forward and we'll we'll see how it works can you give us a little peek behind that curtain what does it look like what are kind of you know how do you how do you keep players safe and and everybody for that matter and and at best trying to not get them sick well i think the one nice thing for us is you know have i mean i know people aren't excited but that you know restaurants and everything shut down right now but it really limits the guys to the rink at home for us and you know we test every morning so we just got tested a few minutes ago uh you know we're keeping guys separated much we can we wear masks you know washing hands we have hand sanitizer everywhere in the building everywhere you go you can you can grab some and you know we're doing small workouts 10 10 guys at the gym at once uh just trying to keep guys separated as much as we can except when they're on the ice and you know follow as many rules you know and i think that's the same thing when we go you know traveling today it's you know first time on the plane for me for a long time it feels weird to say you're going to go you know to winnipeg but you know we're just following all the rules uh we, we have testing tomorrow morning in winnipeg at the hotel and then uh you know they have three different buses instead of one bus we have a bunch of buses going over to to the rink so you know we're being as careful as possible but you know you just never know that's that's the the uh, the great unknown but i do think compared to the u.s i really like the canadian odds the way you know each province has handled everything and and what we've done um hopefully uh, you know we can stay covid free for sure what would you say, uh, Craig, uh, would be the biggest change or the biggest difference that fans might see with the on-ice product this year um, as we uh, kick things off tomorrow? 
You know, I think we, we brought in some new players, and they've been on some prominent lines. So Dominic Simone, uh, Levo, Markstrom in net, uh, Chris Tanev. I think those are what uh, people probably want to see how they fit in. And, you know, we, I always say we got to temper it a little bit because you want them to – it's always hard to come to a new team, and, you, and you'd love to have the best game ever, your first game. But, you know, it's new new people, new players, and uh, it's exciting because definitely, uh, you know, Nordstrom is one of those guys that – We've loved in Boston for years, and watching him on the PK, he, he is—he was exceptional in the in the first two uh, scrimmages. And I'm thinking, oh, it's nice to have a, a PK guy like that that you just feel like when he's on the ice, he does all the right things. Great stick position, the way he runs his routes to kind of break up plays before they even get started. So I'm looking forward to seeing him how that goes in in the regular game. Kind of a two prong question, but. Uh... You know, obviously no fans in the stands. Are, are the guys going to have a hard time with that, do you think? And, and will it look on TV for us, say, like it was with the World Juniors? You know, I mean, I think talking to the guys, even in the – because for me watching – it, it's weird. It feels like you're watching a practice and you're watching uh, Stanley Cup playoffs in the bubble. Uh, but they said the only thing that's weird for him, you know, they, Gio was telling me it's probably when he got into the, the warm-ups, he goes, it's weird. But once the game starts, you're just in the heat of battle. You, you don't notice as much. So I think it'll probably be the same. I mean, we're, you know, fingers crossed at some point we would love to get fans back in here because it's weird for me watching i'm like i can't believe we don't have fans it's just it's just not the same you know when you kind of get the goosebumps before the game the the sea of red during the national anthem you miss all that stuff and i think the guys do but you know they also know once that puck drops uh it's it's game on craig as you alluded to different without the fans can't wait till you know you can enjoy a cold brew and some nachos and watch the Mm calgary flames but uh, what I think, what for me, one of the biggest takeaways of the pandemic was when we had the return to sports, the importance of sports in our lives. Okay, it's it's not life saving, but to have that distraction, to have that escape. Did you feel the same way? You know, from your side. I do. I mean, I, you know, and that's what I said. It's just uh, to be able to watch. You know, I watch football, baseball, all the stuff. It gives me something to do. You know, and the same thing for when the World Juniors were going on. I was watching all the. I couldn't get enough of them. You know, it just felt like something different and exciting and. You know, I think that's what it's going to do for for fans. Obviously, they want to be in the building, but it it does give them a release. We'll, we'll you know, you're you're hoping some maybe by the playoffs we get fans back in the building. Maybe I'm being optimistic, which is, <laughs> you know, by nature. But I think if we could just, uh, you know, it gives everybody something to do. You know, my, even my girls are saying we're looking forward to watching the game tomorrow. You know, good luck as I was leaving. Like, you know, they don't watch all the games, but it feels like now they're going to watch them all. Uh, it gives them something to look forward to during the day. I think we're all very excited to see the Flames back in action. So good luck to you and the team. Thanks for joining us, Craig. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate your time. That's Craig Conroy, Calgary Flames Assistant GM.